Well, it's certainly been a windy week, if you know what I mean, here in been Kyoto. Been blowing like crazy as it blows been blowing the like, autumn yeah. weather in. Yeah. The autumn weather's been blowing in, and so have the tunes. We have a lot of um, wind. We have a wind theme this week, um, you know, with wind instruments. Wind and, instruments. Uh, yeah, it's about to, and I have to say, we should probably do more of these, because these were, I had a really great listening week this week. There was, I liked everything I heard. In fact, I kind of want to stop the podcast right now and go listen to the three classical um, recordings that I selected once more. You were blown but we're not away. Do that. You were yeah. blown I was away blown by away these That's right. by these uh, by this music. I liked it. A lot. I wasn't. Bl- yeah, I don't know about that, but it was. Huh. I was. I was pretty much high as a kite all week, and not because of any like external substances. It was because there was just all this music in my mind. It was really good. I liked it a lot. Anyway, listeners, you're in for a treat this That's week we- if you actually go and listen to the uh, links that we leave. I mean, I. <laughs> you're also going to probably hear us talk for. Almost two hours. I hope you enjoy that too. <laughs> but the music's a lot better. <laughs> yes, we've got a uh, woodwind mm. extravaganza and our usual blow hard bloviation exposition of such works on this episode 33 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind, brought to you from our exclusive location in Western Japan, where the autumn yep. weather has come in suddenly. And, suddenly, like it yeah. always does. The first yeah. podcast where I don't have my air conditioner on in the background, and it's actually getting a bit chilly. Yeah, in fact, and I could. I have long sleeves today for the first time, uh, you know, mm-hmm. since um, we started this podcast, really. That's right. And um, still don't have the um, the heater on, but uh, that's coming, that's coming uh, shortly, I think. Yeah, That's coming up. On this mic here is one of your hosts, Russ, and on that mic is Mike over there. He's Mike. Mike is on the mic, as the Beastie Boys used to say. Mike is on the mic. Mike on the mic. Yeah. And we're going to bring <laughs> you a wind-centered episode. But before we get into yeah. the classical section, I want to remind our listeners, uh, as we mentioned, the links that you'll find in the episode description. Uh, to everything we'll discuss, you'll find links to Spotify and Apple Music, the two most popular streaming services. Uh, you can check out each album individually. At the top of the episode before those, you'll also get the full episode playlist. That's all the tunes in one place, and that's on our preferred streaming service, Deezer, uh, where you can also follow us on the podcast, uh, username Adult Music Podcast, you can catch up on all the back uh, playlists as well. And if you can't see that description on the app or whatever service you're listening to us on, just uh, jump over to our host site, Podbean, uh, look us up Adult Music, and all the links are easy to follow and see there. Now, if you do enjoy the podcast, uh, please follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. And if you'll take a minute to give us a ranking or write a review, we'd appreciate it. That helps us get listed in the browsing category recommendations, which we've been in all week on Podbean. Uh, first nice. time in a while. And, so we're in some uh, of the jazz lists, but we're not really in the classical lists anymore, are we? No, we're in the music commentary uh, um, okay. browsing recommendations on okay. um Podbean and Apple Music keeps or Apple uh, Podcast keeps changing up their format. They they really shrunk down the browsing categories, and now you have to go to actually just search. And then the number of recommended podcasts is only about 
a quarter of what it used to be. So I don't know what they're thinking. I guess everybody's making podcasts now, so there's just so many. Um, but actually, uh, our biggest uh, audience number share is on uh, Pandora, uh, which we can't even access from Japan. I got us on there, but I can't see. Well, you, if you have a VPN, I'd have to get a VPN it. to look yeah. at it. Yeah. Hmm. Um, but uh, that's our biggest uh, percentage, and we just. Uh, Got on there as an extra, I thought, but uh, they, they might be, be commenting all over the place, be. so we don't yeah, even know. We don't it, even you know? know, but uh, that'd be good. And uh, so we're doing well in the U.S. there, and we've got uh, number two is Japan, number three is India because we're on uh, what is it, uh, Ghana and Geosavan, which, and people uh, are actually listening. Yeah, really so good. you know, I'm surprised we have so many listeners in Japan, though. I'm kind of even though we live here. I mean, who's who's listening yeah. to us? I don't. I don't know. There are more people than we know listening to us. So we've, kind of uh, we've made it into the top 100 music ones in Japan. Looking at the rankings yeah. there, so yeah. So someone's listening. That's good to know. And uh, yeah. in addition to that, if you have any uh, comments or questions you'd like to send to us directly, uh, please send us an email at adultmusicpodcast. That's all one word at gmail dot com. We'd love to hear from you, and we'll yeah, get back do to that. you. Yeah. And so on to these blowing <laughs> tunes. Yeah. Well, well, none of these tunes blow. They they more like wail. They okay. wail. That's right. <laughs> I'd like us to know that. All right. Anyway, let's get moving with our first al- album. Now, the thing is, my um, I chose three recordings this week, but I think it might be better to think of this as two double albums because the first uh, album I chose is... um. Is a double album, right? Remember those? Remember when you used to oh, you, yeah. you get those vinyl, vinyl with the gatefold sleeves, and yeah. it was really exciting. You had all that music, you know. Yeah. yeah, they in popular music that just stopped happening now. They don't really um, do that anymore. It's kind of it's kind of like single albums now. But in classical music, they never stopped. You still get. In fact, we we often have far more listening to do in the classical category than in the uh, jazz, simply because some of these albums are really long. They kind of they. Um, they put a lot of music on it. There's and the a lot other of two, flute on this one, that's for sure. Yeah, this is a very fluty um, episode. There's a lot of flute loot, you might want to say, flute. on this uh, program. Yeah. You know, the kind that the Dragon Guards loot. That's the double O, not the U version. That's the double O, yeah. not the... Not the... Uh, yeah. <laughs> not the um, whatever, whatever that thing is. Anyway... <laughs> <laughs> the other the other two albums I have are all in, are both on the same label and were released on the same day. I'll get to that when we get there. They kind of belong together, and I was kind of thinking, yeah, I should have put those together too. But you know, it's just as well. I mean, we had a lot of listening this week, but it was all, as I said, really enjoyable. The first album is um, called <laughs> rather uncreate uncreatively, Mozart and flute in Paris. Now, basically, what this is is it's two. CDs, if you um, if you hit the CD, I think on Deezer they listed it all as one, yeah, long just one sort of list of albums of of tracks. But uh, it's separate. The program is separated into two parts on the on the CD. You know, CD one is um, French works that involve the flute, and the second disc is all Mozart. Okay, so they called it Mozart flute in Paris. It really should have been called flute and Mozart in Paris because they kind of um, <laughs> did it differently. CD one was. Um, and okay, the theme of the double album is uh, is um, uh, the notion that Paris, France, is the flute capital of the world. 
Okay, now it, and it it really has taken on its own sort of uh, the the flute has taken on its own life in uh, Paris and Parisian and in French music in general. Um, they they draw the best colors out of if if you listen to French works for flute and harp, they're usually magical, and we'll get a little bit of that here. Um, by the way, if interestingly enough, um, Munich, Germany native Theobald Bohm developed the modern flute that uh, French music so loved, loved so much. And uh, the Baroque flute was often called the, uh, I think, the French flute. <laughs> so I'm getting well, confused. No, it was, called the, it was called the German flute. It was called the German okay. flute. Yeah, sorry. Right. The Baroque flute was often referred to as the German flute. So uh, even though it has these German origins, the French really took it in, and it's really uh, associated heavily with French music. Just think of the opening of Debussy's Prelude de l'Apremédie d'un Fond. Okay? Uh, ah. It's um, got that magical... Flute line. Flute. Yeah, that it starts with. Very atmospheric. Okay. The soloist here, the flute soloist on this record is um, Emmanuel Paud, who we heard um, not last week, two weeks ago maybe, on the uh, Nino Rota um, chamber music um, right. album. He yeah. played on that one as well. Uh, so we're hearing him again, and he's got this beautiful tone, although he really varies it here. This is pretty interesting. Okay, disc one. Let's let's begin. Disc one is called A Tribute to Paris. Okay. And um this features the orchestra by the way, there are a load of um other soloists on this album, which I'll mention as we hear them. Um or as their tracks come up. Um on on the first um on the, the really the entire um album, the entire two discs, the Orchestre de Chambre de Paris Conducted by Francois Leloup uh, is the um, the orchestra that's um, playing in this. Okay, so the first disc, the first part of the program, is um, it's it's dedicated to French music, and it starts rather boldly with a work by a contemporary composer. Usually, you want to save that for a little later. You warm up your uh, audience, and then you hit them with the contemporary work. But no. Um, Baoud is starting with a, uh, a contemporary work. The composer is Philippe Ersant, and um, his work is a single movement, 18 minute work called Dream Time uh, from 2013. It was composed. It's not that old. So people who complain that, oh, classical music is all by music by dead people, no, not here. Not only is this guy living, but this is a fairly recent work. Um, this. Um, um, the time, if you're kind of familiar with Dream Time, if that rings a bell, you might have guessed that the inspiration comes from Australian Aboriginal myths, according to which the world was created in the Dream Time by ancestors, um, in quotation marks, ancestors, you know, they're referred to as ancestors of humanity, I guess, um, or at least of the, um, the uh, Aborigine people in Australia, who sang the world into existence as they walked across the land. Um, if anyone's ever read um, Bruce Chatwin's book, The Song Lines, he uh, he describes this pretty well. It's a really great book. I want to recommend it. Um, read it way back in college. Very inspirational for me. Well, that's interesting um, because you know, in the Christian tradition, God spoke the world into existence. Yeah. So the power of sound to create the world is a kind of universal theme. Right. I think even uh, Indian music kind of goes into that a little bit too, like yeah. vibrations sort of cause everything to come into Good being. Good vibrations. 
so we seem to be there seems to be sort of a an agreement about uh, that vibration had a lot to do with um, the origins of the world. I'm kind of happy to know that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. There's even um in um Woody, in the Handel's Ode for Saint Cecilia's Day, Saint Cecilia's Day coming up by the way, November 22nd. Um, the uh, she's the patron saint of music in the Catholic Church, or one of them. Some people say it's uh, Gregory the Great too, but I think of it as Saint Cecilia still. Uh, in um, the poem that uh, Handel sets, uh, the earth is ended by um, sound as well at the end. Uh, John Dryden's poem kind of talks about that. Big boom. Um, so, yeah, the big uh, <laughs> you know, music shall untune the sky. He says mm. at the end. The, the dead shall live, the living die, and music shall untune the sky. It's kind of nice, especially the way Handel sets it. It's really, uh, you know, really uh, memorable. Mm. Okay, so the work begins on the flute. Now, we think of, um, if you're familiar with Baud's playing, um, you generally think of him as having this exceptionally beautiful tone and this amazing rapport with whoever he's... Um, uh, who's whoever's accompanying him? They're very together. He's really almost like magnetic the way he plays. Uh, this particular um, work, though, he's uh, got a harsher tone. He really, um, it's it's really interesting the approach that he takes here. Um, the work begins with a small pentatonic melody, and it, it repeats throughout. You hear it very often. It keeps coming back, and I think it kind of acts as sort of like a guidepost to where you are in the work. Like there's a new section starting, and you hear that. Um, the theme again so that'll help you get through the uh, 18 minutes of this which is no great hardship by the way it's a very listenable work um it's not it's not like relaxing or beautiful but it's it's not hard to listen to it's kind of exciting really i liked it a lot i was rather surprised by this um it, it the the um pentatonic melody is supposed to mimic the ancestors um song um it's got this really pretty fluttering opening Oh, the work has a pretty fluttering opening by the orchestra. And then the flute comes in with this harsh edge to the tone. And it's very far forward in the orchestra as well. Um, there's no danger of the orchestra swamping this instrument. They really recorded him up front. And he's playing loud and harshly as well. Uh, but not not an ugly sound. I don't want to make it sound that way. But he's just kind of... There, there's power to the sound. It's not like a, a beautiful sound. It's a powerful sound that he's going for. Um Okay, the, hard, the the flute plays the uh, connecting pentatonic melody first, and um, this work is episodic. So you hear that theme, and then something like a new sort of um, landscape will come into being, and the orchestra and the flute will sort of um, are, are sort of singing that into existence. And then you'll hear the theme again, and then the music will change, and there'll be another one, another. Uh, episode and it goes on like this for the 18 minutes and uh, it's all really interesting i have to say i like the uh the orchestration now you're gonna have to you're gonna hear the flute a lot of course it's really a work for a solo flute but the the um orchestration is well worth listening to here he um it, it carries a lot of the it, i think that the various instruments the tones yeah. that you hear are supposed to um give you the features of the uh landscape yeah. So it's, it's very much a uh, kind of almost pictorial work, almost like a painting. I like this one a lot. Sound. Of course, mm. it's my first time to hear it, but I thought just a general impression, it's very atmospheric. Um, in the yeah. orchestration, there's a lot of nice brass arrangement. And right. in, the, in the middle section of the movement, it's uh, a nice arrangement of low strings and brass. And then the flute is sort of floating above that. 
So yeah. it's sort of, you know, almost this levitating sound. Uh, and as mm. you always hear in French music, the timbres are paid careful attention to, even though it's a very modern piece, the tones are matched. And so the composer has picked out things so you don't confuse uh, tones or things don't get blurred uh, there. And then, in, as you mentioned, the flute technique, he gets a lot of trilling and then some kind of uh, breathy growling, you know, yeah. almost like a Jethro Tull kind of uh, flute uh, <laughs> well, thing in here. Um, and then at the end, there's some really great thundering timpani the, the, in the percussion. There's a multiphonic too, so. effect that he gets in the solo flute yeah, as well. I have no idea how he does through, it. Yeah. But so. it's a it's a pretty amazing sound. You think that's a flute? I, I yeah. really I really would have liked to have seen him do that rather than just hear it. Um, he yeah. gets some pretty interesting effects here. It's mostly a piercing sound. It has an edge to it, and um, he, yeah, he uh, he also plays very acrobatic uh, sort of um, passages as well. So I guess some of this was difficult to uh, create. He's trying to communicate, of course, creative power. Uh, a piercing of the fabric of the earth in order to create. Okay, so uh, fascinating. Uh, I I like this all the way through. I it really yeah. caught me right from the beginning. Um, it's an easy listening, but it's not a relaxing listen. No, but let me put this it is that a good way. Uh, yeah. contemporary piece. I think that would have appealed to a lot of people. Uh, put it on a concert program, people will like it. I think. Uh, it, it keeps your attention and it's accessible. So, yeah, thumbs up for this one. Yeah, something I'm going to want to hear again and again. I, I want to get into this work. And it kind of, it also kind of puts you into that whole myth, too. I really, because when you think, when you have the picture of like the song lines and what we know about the Aborigine, Aboriginal myths and stuff, it's, it's something more to engage with as you listen. It kind of gives you some interesting images to uh, conjure with as you listen. Uh, do give this a listen. I really liked it a lot. Okay, so we get the dramatic contemporary opener, and the rest of the CD is very uh, tame and romantic after that, which is kind of strange. Because uh, after this, we come up with a late 19th century piece, and they're all associated, the, the opening ones are associated with uh, Paul Taffanel, who uh, gave the flute new prestige in France in the late 19th century. So he played a lot of these works, and that's, the, um, that's what Baoud is thinking about here. Um, two works by Camille Saint-Saëns, remember? He, um, it's his, the 100th anniversary of his death this year. I'm glad we're getting a lot of uh, Saint-Saëns in to the program this year. Um, the first work is a romance, Opus 37, uh, from 1871. And then we also get his Odalette, uh, Opus 162, from 1920, so really from two ends of his career. Uh, Odalette, by the way, is, um, is a, it's a, it's a small ode, it's, what he gets that word from so we know what an ode is you can you can figure out what odalette is um rather a you know kind of um a small ode a tiny okay. one yeah a tiny one <laughs> yeah a, um a modest one let's say okay. that's the word i was looking for okay romance the romance became one of taffanel's pieces of choice he played this a lot uh and this is quite a change in tone from the pre previous piece it's really uh Paud is playing with his customary gorgeous tone here, as he would in a gorgeous romantic piece like this. Um, and he's he gets a little rhetorical in this, too, right, about the figuration in uh, the two-minute mark about. Um, usually, figuration is often just played, but he actually kind of makes it sound like um, a statement. He makes kind of a statement with this kind of like sound. It's a beautiful work, very serene by the end. 
Um, you may have heard it before. It's really good. Odalette is a diminutive of an ode. The flute begins in its lower register here. I always love lower flute or wind registers. Poe draws a rich, deeply emotional sound out of the lower tones. He's really moving here. And this is another work that's resigned and serene. Very nice. Yeah, I like this one. Um, this sort of a counterpoint with strings and oboe in mm. about two minutes or so. It's just really nice timbre matching and uh you know the parts just uh what well, i find when you know french composers get instruments in the same register they're always with sort of um you know very different timbres so they stand out and you can sort of see those colors uh you know in your mind as yeah. you listen to it and so just those little kind of matchings uh always uh make an impression on me and uh and then like you said in these two pieces he's showing off that really rich low tone uh that yeah. he has and the phrasing is really nice too so um, right very different than nice the opening work he's, yeah. he's got a lot of versatility all right next we have uh for those of you who like uh women composers see i, I hate to kind of like point out oh this is a women composer but a woman composer but i know that we have as I've said before, at least one listener who wants to hear, to know about women composers. So I just want to point it out for those interested in that. Because uh, I think their music, they, yeah, their music fits in with everybody else's. So I don't feel like we should kind of oh, okay. you know, hold, hold that up. But some people want us to do that. Okay, Cecile Chaminade, a composer who I recommend you hear more of. And here, this is a good um, introduction to her work. It's a brief uh, concertino, Opus 107, from 1902. Okay. Now, I get to give you a little history here. This was written for the Concours de Prix, which is a competition that uh, Taffanel, Paul Taffanel, the uh, French uh, popular, popularizer of the flute in France, uh, ins he insisted that the uh, that the um, the, Paris, the Conservatoire in Paris, um, he said that um, instead of having like a competition where everybody's playing this work and seeing who plays it better – it should require a new work to be written every year that the students then have to play, and then that's the competition. This was written for one of those um, in 1902. Um, it starts very... Now, usually these pieces start lyrically. The first half is showing off the tone of the soloist, and then by the midway mark, they're usually around 8 or 10 minutes long. The midway mark, there's a new section, and it's really very virtuosic and you got to show your technique there so they want to hear tone and technique in these and the, that became the uh the form that most of these works took so this piece starts lyrically uh, concertino um with a downward marching figure from the orchestra and a pastoral melody in the flute we do kind of associate the flute with uh you know pan with the uh the countryside the you know the um Things like that. So she's kind of evoking that here in the opening. Um, it's very touching. And then the virtuosic second half maintains its pastoral feeling with an occasional uh, musette bass in the low strings. Now, the musette is like a uh, gentle bagpipe. So if you think of Scottish bagpipes, they're, they're really powerful and loud. Uh, the musette is kind of a little quieter than that. It's a little more modest. And you hear it a lot in... Um, whenever you hear like a... a like a pedal point bass, like a bass that kind of uh, continues through like different chord changes. That's usually a musette in um, classical music. Um, it's got a big grand finish. It's a gorgeous work, really pretty, really rather lush at the end. Very enjoyable. Um, Cecile Chaminade, Concertino. Make sure you hear that. 
All right. Now, the other big piece, I think the big piece was the opener, but the, the middle of this section is um, Francis Poulenc. How did, the, how did he wind up with the name Francis if he's French? He should be Francois. I always wondered about that, hmm. you know? Uh, I never, I don't know. Anyway, his flute know. sonata written for violin and piano, but here we have an orchestration of it by Lennox Berkeley, British conductor. British composer, sorry. Okay, the uh, sonata was written in 1957, and I know this piece well. I've heard it many times. But the uh, orchestration by Lennox Berkeley, uh, which was done in 1976, is completely new to me. So I recognize the melody of the piece, and the, or- the orchestration kind of smooths out a lot of the pianos, what we hear as the piano's attack, because he kind of smooths a lot of it out. It's kind of a, it's, it's a very different feeling work than the one I'm used to. Um, he kind of darkens the texture of the uh, flute and piano version with his orchestration. Um, um, the, the orchestra, the, this orchestration pushes the flute further into the spotlight. It's almost, it's accompanying the flute, whereas the, uh, in the flute and piano version, they're sort of partners. The, um, flute and piano both have solo parts, whereas it, it kind of sounds like the orchestra when it plays, like it's, it's um, kind of solo parts. It, it just kind of gets subsumed into, uh, it just feels like an accompaniment, sort of. Um, in the first movement, it's a three-movement work, I should mention. Uh, the first movement is called Allegretto Malinconico. Uh, it sounds more pastoral in this, in the orchestral context than it does in its original version. Um, the orchestration brings out the pastoral elements, and this is Berkeley's doing. He's really changed, I think, uh, you know, Poulenc's intent a little bit here. I'm not saying this is bad. It's just different. It's his interpretation of the work. Uh, there's a cantilena that uh, comes in the second movement. It's marked assez lent, which means rather slow. Um, this and this is the more melancholy movement than the uh, the first one. Is called Allegro Melanconico, but this one actually sounds more melancholy. Uh, the orchestration is atmospheric here, and it's kind of acts as a bed for the flute melody, um, which does not really happen in the flute and piano version and the third movement presto presto giocoso giocoso game so fast and playfully i guess baud really shines here in this movement in his virtuosity and he maintains a beautiful tone through very fast passages actually i think baud actually recorded this the flute and piano version on a on a an album from around the year 2000 called paris and I forget who his um, pianist was on that. So this is he's recorded this before. Anyway, it's it's pretty interesting to hear. It's a little different than what we're uh, used to. So you can rediscover this work or hear another man's um, interpretation of it. Yeah, I like this one a lot. I like how know. he varies his tone in here according to the phrases. Uh, so mm. the, you know, the flute sounds almost like different instruments depending on what he's expressing at the moment, and the tones match pretty well. Um, and as you mentioned, the yeah, he's second, more in the spotlight here as well. Yeah, yeah. the second movement is uh, melancholy and quite pretty, and the third movement is uh, it's spirited and rhythmic, but it also has contrasting slower passages, so it sort of takes you on a little journey. But uh, nice arc over the three movements. Uh, I enjoyed it. Okay, next we have two more works. We have uh, Gabriel Fauré, who I love. He's one of my favorite composers. Uh, Fantasy, Opus 79. This is orchestrated by Louis Albert in 1957, so long after <laughs> this piece was written. It was written in 1898. Okay, so um, kind of in the towards the end of 
Farhe's career, but sort of in the middle, I guess, more towards the late middle part. Okay, now this piece was also like the uh, Chaminade above, written for the um, uh, competition, the Concours de Prix uh, for the Conservatoire. Um, this was the uh, first work written for that, I think. This is just right after um, Tafanel decided he wanted to do this. And Faure, by setting the uh, work into two parts, like slow, showing off the tone, and then uh, fast, virtuosic, he really set the uh, mold for what these kind of pieces would be like. And so he's really responsible for a lot of pieces that are like this. I think of uh, Debussy's um, Danse Sacre, Danse Profane for a harp and orchestra, which was also a competition piece. Um, it follows that same pattern. Um, let's see. What do I want to say about this? This, um, Yeah, he gives ample opportunity for the judges to hear the flautist tone in the beginning. There are long phrases over this slow... Uh, waltzing or three four melody rhythm at the beginning and the second virtuosic half is vibrant and celebratory and requires expression of joy from the flute as the player is put through his paces so you got to be playing this really difficult stuff and sound joyful not an easy task a lot of people are just kind of playing through the notes um, one wonders how students fare in this but of course Baud is fantastic here um, this is an uplifting piece actually I liked it a lot the last piece is by Saint-Saëns again. Uh, his Tarantelle. Tarantella is um, is an Italian dance from Naples. And in this one, it features um, Paul Meyer on the clarinet. And he's going to figure on the next disc a lot. And this one starts with this rolling upward motion in the low strings and drum roll figures in the winds. The flute and clarinet soloists emerge out of the quick marching rhythms with figuration and then the 6-8 rhythm of the Tarantella. It's a it's a compound meter. Takes over for a while. And then it changes to a 4-4, which is kind of interesting. The the, uh, the rhythm changes. So I think of a Tarantella, you're just going to hear 6-8 all the way through, but that's, that's not what happens here. He gets this flowing 4-4 rhythm taking over, and the flute gets a long solo. The Tarantella rhythm returns, and the flute gets the quick figuration in this. The clarinet is kind of accompanying, really. And then it plays together in harmony with the clarinet. And the clarinet then gets to play some quick flowing figures. And then a ferocious whirling ending occurs, an exciting ending to the first disc of this program. It's a nice blend with the clarinet uh, yeah. as an ending in that. So, um, the, and the way the, uh, the ending is very climactic. And so how the duo yeah. phrases build up and then boom, and then you're out on the first disc. So, yeah, nice ending. Right. Disc two is subtitled Concert Spirituel. Now, what a Concert Spirituel was, this was um, in a concert series. It was one of the first concert series like ever in the world, and it was um, created in Paris. And um, works were written for soloists to play with an orchestra uh, or in chamber works as well in that uh, series of programs. Uh, and this lasted... Um, from around 1728, let me see, I think I think I have the dates here somewhere, um, until like, I think the, after, after Mozart died, like, but shortly after. Um, the first work, both of these works on this disc, they're two, three movement works, and they were both written for the Concert Spirituel uh, in Paris, one of the first public concert series ever. 
All right, the first um, work is called the. Uh, this has got a pretty interesting history, too. I'll get into that in a moment. The Sinfonia Concert- Concertante. Sinfonia Concertante for flute, oboe, horn, and bassoon in E flat. Uh, Kershaw Anhang, number nine. So this was not really a part of uh, Mozart's. Um, catalog, and I'll explain why in a moment. Um, this was reconstructed, and the condensers were written by the American musicologist Robert D. Levin. Um, and the uh, so- soloists were Emmanuel Paud, of course, on the flute. He's It's really his album. Uh, the conductor, Francois Leloux, is on the oboe, um, but he's not conducting here. He's playing the oboe. Radovan Vlakovic, Vlad Vlatkovic on the horn, and uh, that's the, the uh, French horn. And Gilbert Audin on the bassoon, or the four soloists. There's also an orchestra, too. Oh, no, just the four instruments, sorry. Okay, this was composed for the Concert Spirituels in Paris two weeks after Mozart arrived there in 1778. He was 22 years old. A young man, but a really brilliant one. Um, now, he was already known in Europe because he was a child prodigy and his dad kind of brought him around Europe and, you know, when he was like a baby, you know, like this five-year-old child who was doing amazing things on the keyboard and wowing the crowned heads of Europe, you know, much to his uh, dad's um, uh, enrichment. Anyway, he came back when he was 22 and wrote this piece. Um, this particular piece with four soloists is rather unusual because um, it enlarged the size of Parisian contretemps, which usually had two soloists. And it may have been the first work to feature such instrumentation. Um, it was never performed, though, um, because there was an Italian composer named Cambini who was outraged when Mozart performed a work of, of his, Cambini's, at the piano from memory and improvised a new ending. Because he had not because he was showing off because he didn't like Cambini's work, but because he had forgotten how Cambini's work ended, he didn't remember <laughs> at all. Um, now, if anyone has seen the movie uh, Amadeus, you see Mozart do this to one of Salieri's works, and Salieri's, Salieri is kind of upset about that. Well, it wasn't Salieri that it really happened to. In fact, we're not even sure that Mozart and Salieri ever met. Um, that's just a movie, and but a lot of stories about Mozart wind up uh, happening to the humiliation of Salieri in the movie. But really, they happened to different people. But in this case, it was this guy, Cambini. Cambini was pretty outraged by that, as Italians can be. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he he hid the work so that it would, wouldn't be performed and substituted one of his own instead to be performed at that particular concert. The problem is that the work itself was never found. And uh, Cambini's work disappeared as well. Um, so I guess we'll never get to hear that. Um, now, there was a copy for different soloists, including the clarinet, uh, found among a musicologist's papers in 1870. But, you know, music scholarship is really complicated. And Mozart was the primary author of this. Robert D. Levin cons- reconstructed the work in its original form from that. He didn't think the work was in its original form. And he just sort of, um, I don't know how he did it, but um, this is a reconstruction. We're not really sure that this is the way... Mozart would have wanted it, but it is very Mozartian, so he, I think he did a pretty good job. Anyway, he reconstructed for these four instruments. There's no clarinet in this particular version. All right, the first movement is an allegro, and I have to say, uh, right from the beginning, it's too bad this audience didn't get to hear this work. They really would have loved it. It's got this graceful gliding quality to it. It's uh, typical Mozart, really. Uh, the orchestra sounds good. 
the soloists again any kind of a paud uh, performance the soloists they're they're all like one unit it's really amazing how he and his um sort of um soloist partners all, all get this amazing blend of sound um it's hard to distinguish the timbres of the uh, four instruments they're all in perfect synchrony and uh this is a really beautiful performance um you can you should listen between the eight and ten minute marks. Um, you can really hear it there. Uh, it's really beautiful playing. Uh, the first movement is almost ten minutes long, which is pretty long for a work like this, I think. Uh, the second movement is an adagio and it starts with this watery rippling effect as the soloist lines overlap. Very enchanting, and the gorgeous ideas keep coming. Uh, the players make the most of them. Uh, this is probably the best performed account of this you'll ever hear. I can't imagine anything better. And the last movement, very long, because it's an andantino con variazioni. It's uh, got a lot of variations on the main theme in it. The, again, Mozart starts with this square-sounding rhythm that isn't quite square. He always kind of adds this sort of extra beat so that there's something off about the uh, the melody. And then he um, you know, sort of does his variations on that. He, he's got sort of an added tail. There's a chromatic descent at the end of the um, the main melody. And we expect this of Mozart. He does this all the time. Always listen for that little quirk in everything he does. Uh, this is subjected to variations, and the players catch the playful mood splendidly. Uh, they sound like they're really enjoying themselves playing this. It's really beautiful. Interesting work. Next is another work written for the... Um, the concert, concert spirituel, uh, the concerto for flute and harp from 1778, same year. This is a pretty famous work. Um, a lot of you have probably heard this. Now, the interesting thing about this, the cadenzas uh, in this particular performance were written by Nino Rota, the Italian composer from the 20th century, whose music we heard. Hey, Nino Rota <laughs> again. Yeah, well, I think Mozart actually wrote... Um, uh, condenses for this but they use the Nino Roto ones which is kind of interesting mm. I'll talk about them when we get to them okay now this one is a little more traditional because it um, has a flute and harp so two soloists which is kind of what, what these concerts usually were, was expected at these concerts alright the first movement Allegro um, just hearing the harp timbre after all of this like these winds is really welcome it's a really beautiful sound um both solos have fantastic tones and a smooth rapport. Yeah, this is a really great performance. Um, Rota's um, it, it, his um, cadenza here is a little understated. It's very short, and um, it kind of goes a little bit. See, Rota, I, like I said when we did his uh, chamber music, he's got a foot in the Romantic era, and then one in the kind of more tawdry. Uh, areas of the 20th century, but he's really full romantic here. There's a little. The, the whole kind of pace sort of slows down a bit when it comes on, but uh, it's good. It's almost unnoticeable, really. He, it's very understated in this movement. The uh, second movement, Andantino, is one of the most the more the most accomplished feats of gentleness in music. It's um, very special. If, you, if you're not familiar with this work, make sure you hear this. It's more reined in than other performances I've heard. Like it's shy. You know, it's not really kind of playing out as much it's, it seems a little bit like kind of retreating still very beautiful lovely rapport between the soloists and the third movement rondo a rondo is um, a theme that uh, comes back we keep coming back around to the theme as we depart from it for various um, other sections uh, this is a pretty high speed tempo here faster than usual 
It feels comfortable though with these soloists, and the Rota Cadenza here is uh, flor pretty florid, I thought, really more than I would expect than I've heard from the uh, other cadenzas I've heard in this work. It includes dramatic pauses and harp flourishes as well, like, you know, like when you hear the harp going, you know, those, those kind of glissandi and things like that. Yeah, kind of a cliche, but um, it's beautiful though. I liked it. Um, it's, it, it does have a foot in the romantic tradition though. It's a little more kind of... I guess um, more romantic sounding. Um, yeah, I was um, thinking, yeah. you know, these two instruments—they're kind of an angelic combination. Yeah. I was seeing little cupids floating around <laughs> while I was listening to it. It's very must be that yeah. romantic tinge that Rota added to it, but uh, it's quite, right. uh, you know, other plain sort of lifting uh, tone tones that you hear from those instruments and. Uh, yeah, Rota yeah. sort of highlights the harp in that cadenza too. He right. kind of, yeah. you know, which is kind of interesting, given that it's Paoud's disc. Um, but anyway, he didn't write it for Paoud. Obviously, it's been sitting around, and they just decided to do it. Uh, this is probably among my top recordings of this particular work. So anyway, I really loved this album. I'd like to hear it again. I probably will hear it many more times, and I highly, highly recommend it. Yep, a good one to start out the wind extravaganza on flute. Yeah, and if you're afraid of uh, contemporary music, uh, give that first work a listen. I think you'll really enjoy it, and you'll be back in the fold as far as um, contemporary classical music goes. It's really an enjoyable work, and, and does sound sort of um, contemporary as well. Mm. Okay, next. Now, I had mentioned that um, the next two albums kind of could count as sort of a double album. They're both released on the uh, Orchid Classics label, which is a British label, and they both feature... Winners of the 2019 Carl Nielsen competition. Uh, and they were both released on the same day as well. Go figure. <laughs> so, and the the, uh, the covers of the albums aren't really terribly different either. Because I think it's sort of, uh, well, one's black and white and one's color. But nevertheless, the first one we're going to talk about, well, I'll separate these. And they both feature works by Carl Nielsen as well, interestingly enough. The first one is by Josephine Olech on the flute. And we hear the Odense Symphony Orchestra conducted by Anna, Anna Skrileva. She also conducts the next one as well. And the album doesn't have a name. It's just Concerto for Flutes by Concerto for Flute by Nielsen. Um, who's the other guy here? Verhe. Uh, Verhe. Yeah, new name for me. And uh, Francais, a, a composer I really love, by the way. Anyway. Um, so Oleg, like um, the clarinetist um, Blas Baravec, who we're going to hear next, won the 2019 Carl Nielsen competition for their instruments, and they've both put these these records out. All right, so this this uh, program by Oleg on the flute, Josephine Oleg, starts with Nielsen's Concerto for Flute and Orchestra, written in 1926. All right, a little background. Nielsen was um interested in the um uh, what was the name of the uh the group there was the um Copenhagen Wind Quintet which was pretty famous at the time and he had decided that he wanted to write a concerto for each member he wrote a wind quintet for them which is pretty well known and he wanted to write a concerto for all five members and uh, he only got around to writing two of them before he finally died and we're going to hear both of them 
um, today. Nielsen wrote three concerti in his entire life. One of them was an early romantic work for violin, and then these two came at the end of his life. Uh, they're both pretty quirky. Um, the Concerto for Flute and Orchestra was written for the Copenhagen Wind Quintet's particular, particular is the word they use in the booklet, and even you can call him pedantic, flautist, Holger Gilbert Jespersen. Um, he's, he's particular or fastidious. Uh, today we'd say anal. That's what they're trying to say here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you can kind of imagine this fussy kind of character. And the concerto includes his character in the play and it pokes gentle fun at him, uh, at his fastidiousness by pitting him against a rather intrusive bass trombone. <laughs> And uh, which kind of leaves every time you hear the bass trombone, the flute kind of sounds like a, this angry bird. It's kind of a, a front and it starts chirping away in these um, highly virtuosic passages, which nevertheless show the flutist off to his um, to show his virtuosity off. So it's kind of a fun work. It's a little unusual too. Now Nielsen said that the flute cannot deny its own nature. Its home is in Arcadia, and it prefers pastoral moods. Now you might want to think of um, Pateris Vasque's work from last week, the Oboe Concerto. So we're kind of in the same sort of territory here. This doesn't quite sound quite as pastoral as that work, but uh, there are moments. Um, the first, it's in two movements. This work, and um, the first movement, Allegro Moderato. Um, I should describe this a little bit. It um, starts dramatically with this kind of explosive opening. Um, if we remember our favorite uh, Nielsen Fourth Symphony, starts similarly. And um, then, as Nielsen, as Nielsen says, these are his words translated to English, and I'm reading from the booklet. The solo instrument moves about as if seeking something until it takes hold of a more decisive motive. And the motive sounds chirpy. Uh, the soloist puts it across with full cheer. And one of the things I notice about this soloist is she's exceptionally good at alter altering the mood like immediately on a dime. She just suddenly change um, the mood that she's playing in. So it's pretty extraordinary. See, if you're listening carefully, you'll often be she'll often call it, catch you off guard uh, with that ability. It's pretty interesting. It's a good quality to have for this particular work. Okay, now in this work, as in with a lot of... Um, Nielsen's um, music, there's um, a conflict between key areas. So two key areas will compete, and then one will wind up winning in the end. In this case, it's D minor and E flat. And the E flat theme is the more expansive romantic one, and that makes us want to hear it, and that's the one we're going to want to hear it end in, which is what happens. Um, the uh, D minor is more uptight and sinister. Uh, so this is sort of this flautist in both of his moods, okay, I suppose. Um, and we hear a secondary theme. Then we hear timpani. Timpani are always um, ominous in Nielsen's music. Just listen to the Fourth Symphony. And then we hear the bass trombone, the villain. Well, not really villain, but it's sort of the uh, the sort of um, the gadfly of the piece, shall we say? It's always kind of poking at the flautist. Um, he mocks the elegant flute with his vulgar sounds. He, <laughs> It's pretty noticeable. <laughs> he does a lot of glissandos. You know, it's really yeah. kind of, it's really kind of cute. Uh, the flute is affronted and it asserts its dominance with an expansive melody, and then three brief cadenzas, and they're all beautiful. So the the flautist really gets to play out here. This is really his moment. He's not really going to get it in the second movement as much. Um, and Oleg really shines in this section. She catches all the moods, and she gets a sense of rhetoric. 
in her thoughtful cadenza at about the nine minute mark, you know, you get the impression of something thoughtful coming out as opposed to just, you know, show. I'm really won over by her playing at this point and can't really wait to hear the rest of the album. So I was kind of happy about that. Okay, the movement ends quietly and romantically, but the problems aren't over yet. The second uh, movement, and this is the final movement, Allegretto, Allegretto un poco, Adagio ma non troppo, and then Tempo di Marcia. Um, this starts with a martial sounding rhythm from the orchestra. It's harsh, like in the first movement. These th- th- Both of these movements start out rather harshly, surprising for a, an instrument written for the flute but the flute's job seems to be to calm it all down and to just kind of assert its sort of um its its mood and which which is apparently what this particular flute soloist that was written for did it was in his character he wanted everything to be just so and i'm getting that picture of him from this work anyway the movement softens in the adagio section it's really lovely Olek gives a full sense of wistfulness and then happiness in the more staccato section. And then the material is transformed into an agitated march. And then the bass trombone returns, mocking the march rhythm, providing vulgar downward glissandos, which set the flute off like a disturbed bird. And then at the end, um, it, it resolves the music into E flat, which is really the flute's job. So it kind of like beat the flute to the um, conclusion. And it's rather pats itself on the back by that, by making all sorts of uh, anticlimactic sort of um, um, glissandi while the flute just kind of triumphantly plays its ending. It's a cute piece. Uh, listen for that uh, conflict between the uh, flute and the um, the uh, bassoon. It's well, not a bassoon. What did I say this was? A trombone, bass trombone. It's, it's, it's a very different sounding instrument than the flute. The contrast is great. I really enjoyed this a lot. Yeah, I like this. Um, actually... I guess maybe you had shared Nielsen symphonies with me long ago, a long time ago, uh, maybe 15 years or so or more. Anyway, around that time, I I wanted to hear more Nielsen, but you know, his symphonies got recorded. Well, they didn't get recorded enough, but you could find them. But at one time I was just uh, in one of the music stores here and I ran across a 10 CD set of uh, <laughs> Nielsen music. And I thought, well, I may never find all of Nielsen's music together in one place. And this was by And you wouldn't the, have found them that day if I had gotten no. there first. <laughs> and that was by the uh, Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra, right. uh, Douglas Bostock uh, conducting. And basically had almost, you know, all of <laughs> the orchestral and concertos that Nielsen had uh, composed. And uh, it actually has both the flute and then the clarinet concerto that we'll hear later. So I had heard these before. Um, I have to say of the two, I really prefer this flute concerto uh, more because the orchestral parts are more uh, sort of reminiscent of his uh, symphonies. Uh, If you hear it and you're familiar with his symphonies, you'll recognize those sort of, you know, dual keys centers yeah. and uh, well, that also, happens in the clarinet concerto too but it's a darker of, work yeah we'll get to that yeah. and then uh you know yeah where else where are you going to get a uh, really cool low brass parts in a flute concerto too so i really like this one but a lot. cool but i like the, the, the it's kind of cartoonish it's what cartoonish. he does to the uh yeah but it's cute i, like, I really enjoyed and the I whole also narrative like in the second movement uh the uh, bassoon part uh how it's sort of dances playfully with the flute uh, in this work too. So there's a lot of things to 
like in in this uh, flute concerto, and I think it uh, yeah, it's a great showcase for the flute, but it also captures kind of the spirit of uh, Nielsen's orchestra works a lot. And so yeah, I, I, I like often wonder moment. if the original flutist, flautist, I should say, really, it was chastened by the uh, <laughs> the, the the fun that was kind of made of him in this uh, concerto. I, wonder, yeah. I mean, he got his he got his uh, virtuosic uh, parts, but it's kind of yeah aimed at kind of like portraying him in a way, you know? Mm. Yeah. So anyway, we never met him, but we remember him the way this concerto um, presents him. All right. The next work, uh, three movement um, concerto for flute and orchestra by Theodore Verhe, who is a Dutch composer and uh, one that's a new name for me. I have never heard his music. He's written two flute concerto concerti. Apparently this is the first of them written in 1902. Now he was, um, friendly with uh, Robert and Clara Schumann and with Johannes Brahms, so he's really inspired by them. Um, and they supported his music too. The first movement, Allegro non troppo, it really sounds like, to me, something Schumann would write, but it is, it's unique though. It doesn't sound like Schumann, but it kind of sounds like something out of his, you know, you, you would think of him as coming up with it just because of the sound world it uses. The first movement has a kind of a darting accompaniment over which the flute plays its melody. It's very enjoyable. The uh, second movement, Andantino, connects to the first movement. Actually, this um, this whole thing um, continues like a one-movement piece, actually. Um, it's a lyrical melody, and it's memorable. Very nice. Um, the third movement, Allegro alla Zingarese. And there's your uh, Brahms um, influence there. Zingarese means like, um, the I guess... You know, you don't want to say gypsy music anymore, but the, the music of the Hungarian, um, you know, refugees in Germany that Brahms heard, okay, um, and that uh, Dvorak also heard. I guess Verhe heard them too. Um, so it has all these sort of Hungarian sort of folk themes in it. Also, it, it although they're not as strong as in Brahms's work, um, it's catchy with the flute's downward figures in the opening. The finale is really demanding. Um, it seems to be in sonata form too, because the opening repeats. And um, I thought this was a really enjoyable work. I got to hear it a few more times, to be honest. Um, after the Nielsen, it doesn't sound so remarkable, but I think it is really good. So it, it just kind of—I think it just kind of is in the shadow of the, you know, programming-wise of the uh, the flute concerto. But I thought it was really good. I liked it a lot. I like this one. It's an easy listen. The melodies yeah. really stand out. And There's I, not much to say about it, really. I mean, it's kind of you know, yeah. it won't really surprise you, but it's really good. It's really enjoyable. And uh, particularly the third movement, the flute is very playful uh, as it goes over this kind of very alternating sections of bowed and plucked strings. And then mm -hmm. you get this nice floating flute uh, kind of dancing playfully over that. So, um, yeah, uh, enjoyable and easy to listen to. And the speaking of easy to listen to, the uh, last work uh, by Jean Francais. Now, he's a... Uh, 20th century French composer, and this is a composer not to be afraid of. He he's he wrote very light, pleasurable music. He represents the French school of playing very well. He, his work, this work, Concerto for Flute and Orchestra, focuses on virtuosity, flexibility of sound, and articulation. So the three things you'd expect in a concerto. He said he wrote his music to give pleasure. Now you got to remember, this is these are in the days of Pierre Boulez and the uh, serial music. You know, the big bad kind of like mid twentieth century uh, 
intellectual the painful not, music. Not very painful music, <laughs> yeah. The the House of Pain music from uh, the island of Dr. Moreau, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. But he was uh he would he wasn't political at all. He just wanted his music to give pleasure. Uh that those are his own words. And Poulenc said that his music was full of lightness and poetical insight. That really is an excellent description of his music in general and what we hear here. Um this this is it's light, it's um it's very French sounding. It'll just make your day. <laughs> this is a work that you should probably listen to when you get out of bed in the morning. It'll just kind of yeah. make the rest of the day go well. It's got really um, pretty harmonies. And what I noticed about this in comparison with other works is the way, rather than the flute floating above things, he interweaves the flute with other yeah. instrumental lines in a kind right. of really interesting way. So this sort of, you know, in tandem navigating through the rest of the orchestra and the, the second movement is really quite lovely yeah um by the way i should mention the whole work uses connecting cyclical forms for those of you who like that uh, cesar franck used to like them so the same theme sort of repeat throughout the work and they connect everything wc and ravel did this as well um the first movement presto has a wild chaotic opening uh, the flute gets this uh, cadenza-like intro before the orchestra playing starts to accompany, which is kind of nice. And there's something really circusy about this theme. Uh, another thing, the flute never stops playing. Despite the virtuosity, Oleg's tone remains attractive throughout. Okay, she manages to keep this beautiful tone when she's being put through her paces. Uh, there are a lot of isolated orchestra moments to enjoy in the movement, not least the violin's passage after the three-minute mark and the burbling woodwinds after four minutes. Really lovely. God, there's some great ideas in this movement and this whole work in general. There's a flute cadenza after six minutes and um, another one. And uh, again, attractive tone, virtuosity. And there's an exhausted end-of-day feeling at the end of this movement and there's no pause this whole work goes through like it's one long piece it goes into the andantino which russ mentioned um the flute has a song-like melody beautifully shaped by the soloist uh, josephine oleg um, the middle section picks up energy and a brief cadenza ends the movement the third movement scherzo or joke or something playful um starts with downward figures uh the flute joins in at a quick pace and there's some really impressive virtuosity in this movement as well, interspersed with the lyricism. The fourth movement, Allegro to and slash Allegretto con spirito molto. Um, the flute opens with a very quick figure. Um, there's a downward move. Yeah, there's a downward moving theme to this work. This is what I talked about at the cyclical sort of material. It's all downward moving. You kind of hear these downward moving chords throughout and in the melody as well. Um, so we hear that again, and we get to hear various orchestral groups commenting as the flute plays. Nice effect. And Russ had mentioned this a little earlier. Um, after two minutes, we get into a teasing cabaret-style theme. The tempo picks up at a hectic pace at around the 3-minute, 30-second mark. And the quickness of the orchestra in response to the flute, not to mention the flute's virtuosity, are all impressive. The flute uh, takes a teasing cadenza after four minutes, which lasts a pretty long time, two minutes. And then there's a spirited move to the final cadence to end the movement. This whole album is fantastic. I want to hear it again. Um, maybe I'll hear it tomorrow, but I gotta, we got to get on to new stuff. <laughs> so I don't know when I'm going <laughs> to yeah. get to hear it again. This is really great. I liked it a lot. Yeah, nice album. Yeah. Moving on. Um, this is the other uh, winner of the uh, 
Carl Nielsen competition, this time for clarinet. This is Blaz Sparovec, also accompanied by the Odense Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Anna Skrileva. Orchid Classics again. Uh, these Both of these albums were released on the same day, which is kind of why I wanted to pair them. All right, this one starts with uh, Debussy's Premier Rhapsody for clarinet and orchestra. It was originally for clarinet and piano, I believe. Um, written in 1909 for the uh, Paris Conservatoire clarinet competition. Um, this one really... Um, it doesn't sound hard. It's kind of a mean piece in a way because it doesn't sound hard, but Debussy makes sure that the key and all of these things are have awkward fingerings for the <laughs> clarinetist. I mean, you wouldn't know this as a listener because it just sounds all smooth and beautiful. But he's got a lot of um, awkward fingerings and long, drawn-out tones which require excellent breath control. You, you'll notice that part, perhaps especially if you've ever played a wind instrument. It's a really beautiful melting piece. It's uh we've heard it we've heard it before actually on this program. I don't remember when just recently though. Um Sparavec, of course is able to put this across without a problem. Um the tone just sounds beautiful throughout. Uh he has a kind of drowsiness to his interpretation which I rather enjoyed. It's, it's got a lulling feeling to it. Mm. Um, yeah, he's got a nice tone. It's not especially rich. I mean, I've heard fuller tones from other players, but it's still very listenable. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, that could also be the recording. I mean, I don't know <laughs> how he's recorded, but, uh, sounded great. All right. Next, Carl Nielsen. This is Carl Nielsen's other concerto for the, uh, Copenhagen Wind Quintet. This one's for clarinet and orchestra. This is the last one he completed. This one was interesting to me because uh, in the notes it said for piano or orchestra. And uh, so I I was wondering because this one has a lot of snare in it. So I was was wondering what they do on the piano. Yeah, for the snare drum. Now, the snare drum, when I heard that, I thought right away, oh, the Fifth Symphony, which has an intrusive snare drum in the first movement, it kind of tries to sort of. um, destabilize the key or throw the whole orchestra off and in the end the orchestra winds up uh, chasing it away so for Nielsen the snare drum has a disruptive um, quality to it and that will be the case in this concerto as well um, this was written for the Copenhagen Wing Contest clarinetist Age Oxenvad I, I have no idea if I'm saying that correctly so <laughs> forgive me Danish listeners now Oxenvad rather a little more seriously than uh, the, fl- the flute player who is um, pedantic Oxenvad was bipolar. This was, must have been oh. some ensemble. Like so, he was kind of um, subject to sudden changes of mood as a result. And Nielsen puts that quality into this piece, and the snare drum tends to trigger it. All right, so that'll help you a little. That's that's a part of the reason why this piece might sound a little weird. It's um not quite you know. It's not as straightforward as you would think. So you could think of it as like a, a, a modern sort of take on like a person's personality or an early 20th century one anyway. Um, yeah, so Nielsen used the uh, snare drum in his fifth symphony. And uh, he described the clarinet as at once warm-hearted and completely hysterical, gentle as balm and screaming as a streetcar on poorly lubricated rails. <laughs> um, now... Incidentally, in the um, Fifth Symphony, it is the clarinet that goes berserk when the snare drum starts playing. It really threatens to go off the rails, and it's kind of sort of brought back into the fold in the uh, first movement of that uh, work. 
Um, there's a struggle between two keys, this time between F and E. Typical of uh, Nielsen's work. Um, I'm not sure what key it ends in, though. Uh, this is cast as a single movement, but it's divided into three sections despite the four tracks that are on the uh, album. It's actually a three-section work. Um, the, the second and third tracks are the second middle section. Um, the, okay, so the second section begins with a horn solo, which we'll hear at the beginning of uh, the second movement, the second track on this um in this concerto, and then the uh, third movement starts after cadenza. That would be the fourth track of the concerto. Um, this work starts with some pretty adventurous, reedy, low-end figuration. So, of course, I love that, okay? From the violin. Oh, no, sorry, from the violin. From the clarinet, right at the beginning of this work. A sound I love. Some wild playing in the high-end follows. So he's really kind of going to, to both ends of the clarinet. And there's kind of a folky accompaniment that we hear in the orchestra. It's kind of folksy. Uh, a more lyrical passage occurs. Then there's a cadenza. Uh, cadenza is the solo for the uh, soloist without the orchestra playing. A new rhythmic figure starts at around 6 minutes and 30 seconds. And great virtuosity at the 8-minute mark. The clarinet is an instrument that really can show off a lot of virtuosity. You know, it's, it's really cool. Okay, the uh, second section begins, Poco Adagio. It starts with a horn solo. Uh, the clarinet's melody here is heartfelt. Gorgeous phrasing from Sparavakir. And the snare drum, after three minutes, sends the clarinet into a tizzy. Okay, the music suddenly gets quiet. The clarinet plays melodic coming to terms. It kind of comes back to earth. Um, we continue on the third track with a marking Allegro Non Troppo. This continues the second section. There's a lot of snare drum. It seems to agitate the clarinet into a state that's more on edge. Uh, Condenser 2 starts at the five-minute mark, and there's some excellent quick repeated note virtuosity here from Sparavec. And then the third section, the fourth track of this um, concerto, is Allegro Vivace. Um, it's aggressive from the orchestra and snare drum, and the clarinet responds with quick figuration, very vir virtuosic, and everything calms down by the end. It's got a lovely, placid ending. You want it's to say an interesting about one. That? Um, I liked all the contrast in the movements and the uh, sort of contrasts in there with the low strings against the clarinet. And then uh, in the third movement, there's a sort of a bassoon part over a pizzicato kind of string plucking. Uh, mm -hmm. And then the fourth movement, those kind of intense string lines. Uh, and then the quirky snare kind of thing yeah um yeah uh the clarinet parts are really interesting and virtuosic i i guess i preferred the orchestrations from the flute concerto we heard yeah. earlier but as i said i i wondered if this was first composed as you know a work for piano and then he worked the orchestra out uh, orchestrations out from there and that's why it seems to have a different quality to me or not but um yeah, I thought the orchestration is not quite as uh, compelling as the flute uh, concerto, but the as a vehicle for clarinet and then sort of the quirkiness and uh, sudden changes. It's kind of an interesting uh, piece that draws you into what's going on. Yeah, I feel like the flute concerto is a little more like on the surface. It's sort of about a rather 
kind of comical situation. Whereas this one's a about something a little more serious. Like this yeah. person has like a like a sort of mental disorder, and is being uh, portrayed in this. I find this work hard to um, absorb. Like I listen mm. to it again and again. It's all one movement, and it kind of doesn't stick with me. I like I like it, but I it it's it's a harder work to sort of absorb. I think. Yeah. It might just be its its theme as well. It's it's a little hard, you know. It's it's sort of dense, but enjoyable. Let's just say that. Okay, track six through ten. Witold Ludoszlowski, Polish composer from the twentieth century. A lot of composers from the twentieth century went the twelve tone and serial route, but there were composers post from the post war era era who didn't want to go that way, and they had to develop their own ideas. One of them was George Ligeti. And he had a lot of humor in his music and sort of, um, you know, uh, investigated different things like uh, microtones and rhythms and things like that. And another composer like that was uh, Ludoslavsky, who um, developed these aleatoric techniques where he would um, have these parts written that you could play whenever you wanted, sort of. So the musicians or the conductor had to decide when they were going to be played. we're not hearing any of that in this piece. This this is called Dance Preludes for Clarinet, Solo, Percussion, Harp, Piano, and Strings, 1954. Um, we're hearing the first arrangement of this from 1955, and there was another orchestral arrangement in 1959. We're hearing the earlier one because the clarinet is really the solo instrument there. The 1959 arrangement passes the clarinet's line between instruments more, so they, we, he wanted to have this one as a clarinet solo. Now, this isn't one of um, Ludoslavsky's more um, demanding works because it belongs to the folk-based area of his output composed when he was in Warsaw, which was under Soviet rule. And he wrote these works to appease the censors. You know, the Soviet Union censored everything and they wanted music that was going to appeal to the the people. Um, it turns out, again, it's one of his most popular works. I mean, that always happens. And the melodies are all Ludoslavsky's creations, but they're written in a folk idiom. All right, it's five movements. They're all very brief. Uh, it's not. It's not a very long work. It's for, it's fairly lightweight. Surprising for Ludoslavsky. Um, it just go, it just shows what he's uh, capable of. I just wrote notes like it's pretty. Um, there's an appoggiatura melody in the third movement, um, which means like sort of a leaping down from a, a higher note to a lower one. Uh, the andante starts with the thumping bass and upward piano figures. Um, it's a little dark and mysterious. And the last movement has a repeating folk melody, and it's rather fast. Um, it's enjoyable, really, for the uh, the clarinets playing. And it's it's um, an immediately appealing work. It's just very, very short. You know, each movement is around two minutes long. So it goes by fairly quickly. Okay. Last, we have Aaron Copeland, American composer. Concerto for Clarinet and String Orchestra with Harp and Piano. This was written in 1948 for Benny Goodman, the jazz clarinetist, and it was premiered by Goodman in 1950. Um, it draws heavily on jazz styles, but they're not terribly noticeable as far as I'm concerned. I don't know. It, you can hear them in there, but I don't. it doesn't feel like a jazzy work, like a Gershwin work would be. Um, this is the original version. Um, Goodman, when he premiered the work, he made some amendments because he wanted, uh, you don't know, be able to play everything, I guess. I think the uh, Copeland's original writing was a little too demanding in parts. Um, but this we're hearing the original version that Copeland wrote here. 
Okay. The first movement is called Slowly and Expressively or labeled Slowly and Expressively. Um, it's a slow lyrical melody and that emerges from a slow rocking rhythm and it really stays that way. Um, we don't hear the clarinet do much in this movement besides carry the slow moving melodic material. So I guess it's showing off tone here. Um, the second movement is a cadenza, very short. It's a minute. It's almost two minutes long, very brief. Um, it starts slowly sort of like where the uh, first movement left off, and then picks up energy. Um, the cadenza uses the whole range of the instrument. Okay, so we hear uh, it ends with a scale from the low to the high end. And then the third movement, marked rather fast, has kind of a ticking rhythm to it. I like the uh, piano's contribution to the overall sound in this movement a lot. Um, the rhythm abruptly changes around the 2 minute 45 second mark to something a little more angular. It sounds to me like the orchestra is high in the mix in this. The clarinet's melody has a jazz is a jazz type sort of um, feel to it, but it doesn't really sound like jazz. Uh, and the accompaniment, it's jazzy in that it has like a swing rhythm, but it doesn't really sound like jazz, despite being relatively slow. Uh, we hear the clarinet is piercing high end very often in this movement. Uh, Sparovic's sound is appealing, even in this harsh register. And I love the ending, which honks on some of the instrument's lower notes, then glissandos upward. It's kind of cool. Anyway, that's the end of this album. It was really enjoyable as well. And this is another one I'd like to hear again and again. Yeah, both these uh, are kind of interesting. The Lusowski, um I guess I liked... Um, the fifth, the fifth one uh, in that series, uh, mm. the best or fourth. I like the fourth one best, although the fifth one has a lot of rhythmic, uh, interesting things. The fourth one was the longest one, so yeah. it's kind of yeah. You had a chance to actually grab it. Mm. Something Nicole, like this is going to happen in the jazz releases too. Yeah. <laughs> you know and, which one I'm talking about. Yeah, and the Copland, uh, yeah, the the first theme is just really lovely. Um, the sort of warm yeah, string tones and slow waltz uh and then uh but then those high tones uh, mm -hmm. that this must be really challenging for uh you know the average player uh to you know keep that you know sounding uh um you know nice with those right. you know beautiful uh melodic parts in the first movement there uh the second movement is kind of uh dancing uh with interesting rhythm changes and then uh, that ending with those uh, registered changes and then uh, right. the real high reaches at the real end. Right. It's like you could make or break that whatever right. happens on those. But uh, he, it's he the last thing it. you hear. If you if you miss yeah. that, you kind of pretty embarrassed because that's and how it, the piece ends. It does get really edgy, but he keeps it within that you know realm yeah. of uh, of tonal centeredness there. So uh, it's a nice. Uh, Nice piece. I think the the uh, the high end of the clarinet and the, the the really wailing high end comes from like the jazz of the era where clarinetists yeah. used to play way up there. You know, yeah. just kind of like make that sound. Yeah. You know, kind of like here I am. <laughs> yeah. All right, it's actually a nice transition this week. We have sort of a jazzy yeah. ending, and so we're going, we're going to, to jazz uh, and jazz. Uh, matching the. Uh, Wind theme, I picked uh, a woodwind uh, combination of things here, uh, beginning with a player that I didn't know anything about. And so uh, I had seen his name floating about. And so I thought I'd uh, <clears throat> pick, uh, 
pick up on this one to check it out for myself. And so uh, I'm not actually sure uh, how to read the title. Yeah, um, me neither. Because <laughs> I uh, looked it up. It looks like it's probably what three bird. Is this three the one you're bird, talking about? But it the, before the three is that... sort of a less than. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's sort Symbol. of a what do you call it an emoticon, emoticon kind of thing. Yeah, because yeah. I think it's I think it's supposed to be like breasts or something. I'm not really sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, um, unless it's the a three is like the thing. the heaviness of the breasts or something. I don't know. Yeah, it could be. Uh, but they said on the internet it was listed as the people who wrote about it wrote about it as three bird. I I can't yeah. imagine that's what it's called though. Three bird. Uh, this is yeah. by the. Uh, Tenor saxophonist and clarinetist Kevin Sun. Uh, it's on endectomorph music. That's an interesting <laughs> title. Like the body types you get, the endomorph. It's a, it's a, the it's a more interesting uh, <laughs> name than the, the album's title. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Kevin Sun, I, I don't know much about him. There's not a lot uh, about his background, but uh, he's playing out of New York City. Uh, I assume he's uh, Chinese-American. Uh, uh, because uh, in addition to playing in the U.S., he's also performed uh, in China, and he is the artistic director of the Blue Note China Jazz Orchestra. Oh, cool. Um, and um, so what drew me to this album, um, Bird being the affectionate uh, nickname for the great bebop uh, jazz alto saxophonist uh, pioneer, Charlie Parker, as all jazz phone. Uh, fans will know. And uh, last year, uh, 2020, was the 100th anniversary of Charlie Parker's birth. Um, and well, over the years, we've seen a lot of tributes to uh, Charlie Parker uh, by various players. And then uh, last year, we had mentioned this album uh, on uh, Smoke Sessions Records, Bird at 100. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this is uh, sort of uh, 100 years plus one <laughs> Uh, one extra year and uh, Kevin Sun has done uh, interesting sort of uh, tribute on his own uh, more from the uh, composer's uh, point of view and so what he's done is uh, he's taken various Charlie Parker compositions and solos and used them as inspiration uh, to sort of uh, reimagine and rework various aspects of Charlie Parker's music in a modern jazz Context, And so you have to have that sort of um, background and situational awareness, I think, to get the most out of this album. So probably to... But, but even if you don't, I think you'll still kind of get something out of it. It's, yeah, it's a very quirky album. Yeah, it's quirky. But um, mm. if you know Charlie Parker's music, it will you'll have a deeper meaning. And if you don't, it's a good chance to uh, go back and, you know, investigate you know, one of the greatest innovators of jazz who really changed uh, the whole direction and concept of jazz music. Uh, on this album, we've got uh, Kevin Sun on tenor sax and clarinet, and he also uh, varies up the instrumentation depending on uh, what he's aiming for here. On uh, some of the tracks, we've got Adam O'Farrell on trumpet, uh, Max Light on guitar on three tracks, and then we've got on piano in Fender Rhodes, Christian Lee and Walter Stinson on bass and Matt Honor on drums. And the first track on here is called Greenlit. And this borrows the uh, harmonic uh, progressions from uh, Charlie Parker's uh, famous confirmation. Uh, but it sort of adds a 
this is from the album notes. He says he adds an oscillating metrical form and a new melody. And so the new melody is interesting, and uh, they make it weave sort of between the sax and the trumpet, and there's no piano on here. Uh, however, if you know the chord changes, if and, you know jazz fans uh, who know uh, confirmation, you'll know the the harmony, uh, the changes to this tune. You can f follow them along easily in the bass. Uh, everyone takes a turn at soloing on here, and the, the new drum beat gives it an unusual kind of challenging uh, feel. Uh, so it's kind of interesting. Uh, next is uh, uh, two tracks, uh, sort of a part one and part two called Adroitness, and this is based on uh, another famous Charlie Parker tune, Dexterity. Uh, part one focuses on the melody of that composition, and then two is a rhythmic focus. Uh, Sun switches to clarinet here, uh, which makes a really interesting tonal blend with the Fender Rhodes uh, that is put on part one. And uh, so that's sort of uh, just a melodic exposition. And then part two begins with a very syncopated rhythm behind the melody, and it gets kind of swinging then under Sun's uh, solo, where he switches to sax for the second part. And then the same pattern is repeated uh, for the piano solo, uh, the changing rhythm. And uh, Lee uh, gets some kind of new, different harmonic ideas uh, into that. So kind of an interesting exposition on another well-known Parker tune. Uh, track four. Uh, it's called Composite, and uh, this features, uh, from his description, uh, drums along a thickening web of melodies derived from four Parker blues compositions. And what you he actually hear in this is kind of a, a meandering uh, Rhodes piano line, and it gets topped with clarinet melodies again, that combination of tones. And they become more bluesy in a Charlie Parker uh sort of concept of the blues fashion as it goes along over the drumming. Uh, five is uh, onomatopoeia, and this uh, kind of brings together two uh, minor key uh, touchstones from Parker's playing. Uh, this would be actually a Dizzy Gillespie's uh, tune that Parker was uh, uh, also known to play on, a bebop. And Charlie Parker's segment. And uh, this one, uh, we get guitar joining in, Max Light, with a really reverby cool tone, and uh, then Sun Sax, and it's a, it's a real fast swinging uh, bop treatment, treatment. And the guitar and sax solos are really uh, fluid uh, and really bop style. So this one's got a lot of fun and energetic tune. Uh, six is uh, Dovetail. And this is uh, called An Abstract Dance Through Parker's Two Studio Take Improvisations on Yardbird Suite. And so, you know, obviously Sun is really familiar with all of uh, Parker's recordings. They're even going through the various uh, takes and things mm. uh, of extra solos and things that are available. Uh, here Sun is back on clarinet and uh, Lee comes in with some in the background with some really dissonant harmonies on the piano. And then uh, Lee takes over and develops some new kind of themes. And then Sun comes back in with a second theme. And Elise solos again with 
a lot of harmonic liberties. Uh, and he's on uh, clarinet. And then Sun comes back in, but this time on tenor. And uh, things stay kind of abstract. And he makes a surprise switch again to clarinet for the ending. So <laughs> sort of keeps you guessing as they move around. Uh, I guess that's the idea of Dovetail putting together these two different takes. Uh, seven is called Cherut. Uh, and this is uh, kind of an extended dialogue with the trio uh, over, they call it an accent map drawn from uh, the tune she wrote, and so transformed into Cherut. So it's just sax, hmm. piano, and drums. And it's a very short piece, kind of working out just this uh, kind of composed, accented, syncopated rhythm thing. There's not a lot of uh, improvisation going on over that. Yeah, so uh, they're making a joke on the title. Cherut is like a cigarette. Right, sort of, right. right. Yeah. And so okay. she wrote to Cherut's, uh, she wrote, I get it. wrote, actually it was wrote, R-O-T-E, uh, which, uh, you know, a kind of derivative anyway, but then it's C-H-E-R-O-O-T. Yeah, so they <laughs> taking some liberties with that uh as they do with track eight uh yeah uh, <laughs> sounds chinese this was really interesting yeah in a couple ways uh so the composition dewey square uh d-e-w-e-y and this is uh changed to uh chinese do ye d-u-y-e's choir uh and uh, y-i y-i yeah, yeah. and this is uh said, uh, reimagines Dewey Square through the lens of the mysterious introduction from the studio master take. Uh, so I guess that's some, another extra take. Anyway. Um, uh, I, I don't even know these recordings. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've heard, uh, I don't know the Charlie know Parker Dewey recordings Square. terribly well, but I know I've right. heard them. Yeah, so, yeah. Anyway, uh, we get a little treat here. So uh, Sun plays a the uh, kind of uh, Chinese pipes uh uh, the wind instrument called the shung. Yeah. And uh, so he I was comes wondering in. wondering what that was. Actually, yeah, he yeah. comes in with that and it's sort of, you know, it's, it's you know, a dual tonality. It's it's sort of out there compared to what else is being uh, played. And that that combined with the guitar is really kind of otherworldly effect uh, at the beginning. Uh, but then it gets kind of cool. Uh, Honor cooks up some complex beat uh, for the melody, and he keeps it mixed up throughout the tune uh, between this even beat and then swinging. And uh, you can f follow his drumming through the guitar and sax solos on this tune. It's really intricate. Uh, the solos here are really m melodic and kind of nostalgic, hearkening back to you know earlier eras of jazz, and they complement the sweet melody, which is really in contrast to the <laughs> uh, otherworldly intro. And then... Uh, Sun gives you a little bit more of the shung at the end <laughs> to take it out in the uh, same manner that he brought it in. So, yeah, this one is, uh, you know, really reimagined. Uh, track nine is Bigfoot. And this is uh, a classic Parker groove uh, that I guess, uh, I'm sorry, classic Parker tune with a new groove, uh, which is variously titled Drifting on a Reed, Air Conditioner, or Giant Swing. Uh, it's a slow sax blues over fast, even bass lines in the piano and bass that are doubled. Uh, and then it hits this sort of rising uh, line sort of uh, progression. And the sax joins in with that for a while. Uh, then they settle on a more regular groove for the head again. Uh, there's a 
longer piano solo by Lee. Uh, Sun takes a sax solo. He keeps it kind of bluesy and uh, works well with the groove. And then they hit that unison ascending uh, lines and riff again on, to take the tune out. Track 10 is a Sturgis. And this is based on Parker's uh, recorded improvisations on the tune Mohawk. Uh, O'Farrell is back on trumpet on this track, uh, and it's just uh, bass and drums. Uh, the arrangement is fun. There's a lot of pauses in the lines. Uh, and if you listen closely, you'll hear his son get some cool overtone notes uh and as the lines sort of go in multiple registers, they hit some unison uh, high notes together uh, really well. Uh, so it's kind of a f fun little uh, playing on this Mohawk uh, improvisation. Uh, 11 and 12 is uh, a new kind of exploration from the original Parkerton Scrapple from the Apple. This is called Shapple from the Apple. And uh, it explores the uh, rhythmic implications in the introduction to Scrapple from the Apple. Uh, and apparently this See, is... He says uh, rhythmic implications. What does that mean? It's like whatever he wants it yeah, to be. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Gonna, mm. Supposedly this is... Un this in the album notes is a nod to both Phil Schapp and the misspelling on the Happy Bird LP. So apparently there's a mistake on wow. the album he's, cover. Th this guy's and, a real nerd. Yeah, he is. <laughs> he's, a, he's a bird nerd. <laughs> he's got um, all these records like, yeah. <laughs> um, so wow. here we get uh, uh, O'Farrell with a nice cup-muted uh, trumpet intro that he gets some kind of uh, microtonal things going uh, in the pitches that are kind of cool. And... Uh, the, the intro section and then he keeps the mute in and uh, Sun comes in on clarinet and we've got bass and drums again uh, on the second half of this and then uh, Stinson has a nice bass solo and O'Farrell gets a, a rhythmic trumpet solo that keeps the charm of the muted tone uh, track 13 is uh, actually a Dizzy Gillespie tune uh, famous mm. tune uh, Salt Peanuts um, and uh of course, uh, Parker played on this tune often a lot. And this one is uh, very similar. It's kind of uh, recorded like the uh, uh, one of the original versions. This actually says in the notes, it, it mirrors the 1945 uh, Guild recording, uh, but they do change it up a little bit with a few extra beats, uh, which if you know the kind of... Uh, it's very famous, but you'll recognize that they rework the melody lines a little bit. Uh, and the solos uh, go through Lee, Sun, O'Farrell, uh, and they have some interesting uh, rhythmic and tempo changes behind the soloists. Uh, uh, keeps them on their yeah. toes. But uh, Stinson and Honor mix it up, but they stay really locked together. So the, the time <laughs> changes behind their solos. Uh, and that it keeps it kind of fresh, and they're having a lot of fun here. Um, then uh, track 14 is called Arcs Peel, and uh, this is based on Parker's studio improvisations on uh, Scrapple from the Apple. And uh, Sun is on clarinet here, uh, just over bass and drums, and it's just a very short take based on this one uh, improvisation of Parker. Uh, 15, uh, this one I'm... <laughs> No, I had to read this a few times. Uh, there's a this is actually a Charlie Al Parker album, uh, which is a 
named of tune, Klakt uh, Ovisids Tene. And this tune is called Tauk Overseed Nete. Or something like that. Yeah, so <laughs> apparently, this is another one, I guess, that the, the track was actually written wrong because some, as someone says that Charlie Parker's handwriting was misread for what the tune should be called or something. Uh, anyway, uh, Light comes back on guitar on this one. And I uh, hear Asan has a lighter and more flowing tenor tone uh, on this tune. And uh, Stinson gets a nice uh, bass solo spot. And this is the last tune on the album. I enjoyed this album. Um, I like this idea for um, you know reworking tunes in a modern sense, or you know taking uh, alternate takes or or just solos uh, and expanding upon those ideas. Uh, the arrangements are interesting. Uh, you know, choosing not to have piano on some tunes or having the guitar, the Rhodes and clarinet. Uh, tones together. So the instrumentation and arrangement choices are fresh. I think it'll be of most interest to people who are familiar with you know, Charlie Parker's recording. So they have a jumping point uh, to get to what Sun is presenting here. But, you know, maybe even if you don't know Parker's music, you know, you'll find this one kind of interesting and amusing. You know, one of the things that I kind of pulled out of this record is very, I said it was very quirky. A lot of the tracks are like a minute and a half, two minutes long. They don't really, so it keeps, it, it constantly keeps your attention by constantly changing, even within longer tracks, like the the, the rhythm will suddenly change. And it, it almost feels like if, as soon as you, your, your short American attention span starts drifting away, it just does something to pull you back. Yeah. It's almost like it's calculated to do that. So I found myself like, you know, always kind of like being brought back in when I, when my yeah. my mind started to drift and things like that. I thought that was really it was a really interesting approach to these these tunes. What, what I like about it is, you know, of course in jazz you have the jazz standard, which right. you know is a body of the American songbook songs that players have played, you know, since uh, the Tim Pan Alley age of great composing and that are still played today and, and all jazz musicians are expected to know them and you know most jazz releases will have at least one or two standards and new players are expected to come up playing those and show you know that they understand the tradition and hopefully bring something new to them and then you know there's kind of a resurgent in resurgence in uh new jazz composers composing their own uh new works um and uh you know for better or worse uh there's some great new composers groups like the new composers octet and uh players like that sometimes you'll get people who jump off too soon with all of their own compositions uh so it's nice to see you know sort of a you know for up-and-coming players to have a balance of standards and new things and then it's always nice to see players go back and revisit great compositions from their mentors, uh, you know, so we've seen like, uh, oh, what was uh, um, Brian Lynch's uh, Latin reinterpretation of Woody Shaw's tunes, right? Yeah, and those kind that. of things are really cool. But um, this is also a cool idea for someone to go back on sort of a micro level, you know, and take uh, not just play Charlie Parker tunes, but look at small parts of them and segments and things that they found interesting. Um, 
and uh, so I, I think it's a, a valid approach and uh, something that goes to a little bit more depth on the jazz composition level. And, you know, uh, I think it brings out some interesting ideas. So um, He I'll certainly looking... loves his Charlie Parker. <laughs> I think he's also done a, a Lester Young sort of uh, exposition too. So I might look that up to check out uh, next about uh, Kevin's son. So we'll be seeing what he does next. Uh, the next album is uh, by uh, female saxophonist Nicole Glover, uh, who we heard before on episode 23 as a guest on Art Hirahara's album. And uh, she's got her uh, new release out on the Savant label called Strange Lands, uh, which is produced by uh, trumpet great Jeremy Pelt and also mm. features the uh, wonderful jazz pianist who we also heard on the program, George Cables, on several tracks. And uh, so this album uh, came out uh, based on uh, a theme inspired by the experience of the new reality of COVID. I watched an interview with her. And uh, so it's kind of a science fiction-based uh, <laughs> theme in this new otherworldly reality we're in. And so that's how she chose uh, the uh, tunes and standards to fit in with that. And so we've got here uh, Nicole Glover on tenor sax, uh, Daniel Duke on bass, and Nick Cacioppo on drums, and uh, George Cable's on a few tracks, which I'll point out. It begins with the title track, Strange Lands, and uh, this one starts out with uh, Cacioppo's drums that beat us in. Uh, Glover takes off over the real up-tempo beat. Uh, her tenor tone is really thick and she plays aggressively. Uh, there's no piano or harmonic uh, instrument in here. So, you know, this sort of trio idea that goes back to maybe uh, Sonny Rollins was the one who worked the most with this, uh, gives the sax player a lot of harmonic freedom. Uh, her lines are melodic and sometimes bluesy, uh, in here, she gets some high register honks in as well mm. as she trades off with the drums. Uh, it's a real high energy uh, first cut, and she shows a lot of uh, aggressiveness in her play. Yeah, hyperactive drumming too. This guy yeah. really makes a statement yeah. as well. <laughs> he beats it out. Yeah, yeah. It's an exciting track. I like. I thought yeah. this was a great opener. Yeah. Um, don't think that uh, you know. Oh. It's a female sax player. There's going to be some girly playing or something. No, she really... Nope, uh, not here. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Um, uh, two is a original by the bass player, uh, Danny Duke, called Hive Queen. Uh, I like that title. Uh, this one starts with a hypnotic alternating bass riff. Uh, and then uh, we get a little bit of uh, George Cables on this one. Uh, he comes in and uh, he gets the first solo. He plays... Uh, kind of uh, inspired lines over the interesting chord changes here. Uh, Glover is next. She blows really hard and hot. Gets some nice low fat tones in her solo too. Uh, Duke takes a solo too on his own tune. Uh, this one keeps up the high energy uh, feeling uh, set so far. Uh, three, otherworldly, the Twilight Zone. Uh, this one has another bass intro. Uh, the drums join in for a medium tempo and uh, Glover introduces the minor melody. She's more relaxed here in tone uh, and uh, phrasing to start out. 
As she builds the intensity through a solo with a lot of fast lines, trills, bent notes, and uh, Duke takes uh, more of a leisurely solo here. Around uh, the middle, she's got some good ideas, too, in yeah, her solo. I yeah. really enjoyed this. So up to this point, I'm really enjoying this album, by the way. So Oh, up to this point. Oh, okay. Yeah, up to, well, yeah, let's get to the next track. Yeah, um, I think, she, you know, this is where she shines in this sort of uh, expansive trio format yeah. uh, where she has a lot of freedom. Uh, right. Then we change pace uh, to get a little more melancholy with the Hobeam tune, uh, Jinji. And uh, she shows her more, more lyrical uh, side on this uh, uh, slower tune. Uh, there's a lot of space here with the, just the trio uh, format. Uh, and it shows off uh, Duke's bass tone and touch uh, really nicely. Mm. But she's really uh, um, Glover's in a more laid back uh, mode here. Yeah, I think she went for something more atmospheric here than yeah. really heart heartfelt. Right. And I didn't, for that reason, I didn't really think that this interpretation came off because I, I'm used to, I know this song from the, the Francis Albert Sinatra Antonio Carlos Jobim right. album. Right. And uh, he, he does this really, um, this this really heartfelt vocal on that it really it comes yeah. across very well and I just kind of felt like there was I guess I had that in my head I feel like there was something missing here it didn't mm. really feel like a bossa nova tune and and okay. uh, I don't know I just kind of I, I didn't feel like she got the um, the sensitivity required let's say I think it may be hard to really get a full bossa nova feel without yeah. uh, a chordal instrument because yeah. you know the bossa nova of course, the bass is outlining the chords, but Bossa Nova needs maybe those unique chords voiced mm -hmm. more. I mean, I'm imagining them, but it's different from hearing them on a on a guitar or something. Um, that could be part of it. Uh, okay. Five is called Parks. This is another uh, Cacioppo original. Uh, this is a kind of a angular post-bop melody, uh, and uh, Glover really kind of has a free exploration on this one. Uh, also gives uh, Cacioppo a, a chance to solo on here too. She's uh, really good here. She's really good on these like more aggressive yeah. sounds. She's got this really muscular sort of yeah, approach. Yeah, she does. You know? Aggressive and free, uh, free yeah. blowing range uh, really fits her personality well. Uh, as it does on the next tune, uh, another Cacioppo original called The Switch. And uh, this one has... Uh, uh, kind of, it's a fluttering figure that modulates as the basis for the melody. I guess that's the uh, switch. And so this gives her also a lot of room to explore uh, this sort of modulating uh, figure. And so she's really fast fingered in this one uh, in her solo. Uh, and Duke as well on the bass, uh, while he goes through his solo, he, he's able to maintain this sort of bouncing rhythm that this tune has. So it's got a lot of motion to it. Uh, it has that sort of inherent tension in the uh, head with with that alternating uh, thing that you're able to build a lot of ideas out of for the solos. Uh, and the last three tracks uh, bring George Cables back. Uh, another Cacioppo original, Notturno. Uh, this one has a... Uh, Baseline intro, it kind of made me imagine like someone sneaking up at you at night, <laughs> like running mm -hmm. in between trees I, and I pausing. 
You know? Yeah, I kind of wrote like a detective movie groove. Yeah, yeah. Running along. Although once the tune gets going, it has a nice melody with a lot of harmonic movement. This is a really nice original tune. Good composing. I don't want to say from a drummer, because you know you usually don't think of drummers as having these really developed melodic or harmonic senses, but this tune does have it. Glover keeps it bluesy in her solo. Uh, and Cables has a uh, kind of special touch that he always has with a tasty solo in here. Uh, and then uh, Glover comes back with another solo that has a really, uh, I appreciated the kind of intervals she found to navigate through the chords. Uh, I thought that was a nice touch. And then they slow it down at the end, uh, kind of over these rolling toms from Cacioppo. Uh, and uh, Glover takes it out with a, slow, a sultry cadenza um and we've end the album with two standards uh, a flower is a lovesome thing uh, billy strayhorn a pretty intro from cables uh glover comes in with a kind of uh new breathy tone uh, that's very nice and it's just the two of them uh for the whole tune they leave a lot of space uh nice gentle treatment i really like the unhurried tempo uh it's not rubato, but it could be at any moment. It's that kind of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, hanging tempo that uh, Cables is able to pull off with his relaxedness. Uh, and that also enables Glover to be really relaxed and melodic. And uh, Cables shows his trademark touch and sense of dynamics uh, that he can pull off in a solo. Uh, yeah, really nice duo piece. And nine, uh, the Cole Porter tune, I concentrate on you. Uh, the bass walks into the tune with a medium swing, and they give this one just a straight-ahead treatment. Uh, Glover keeps her solo really loose and low, uh, emphasis on swinging melodic playing. Uh, Cables gets inside of the tune uh, as you know these kind of standards. He knows inside and out, so he can find all the cool kind of, you know, leading tones in the harmonies uh and uh his solo has some cool inventive ascending phrases in it uh duke gets a brief bass solo as well and uh then cables kind of weaves a nice slowed down ending bouquet of sounds with some uh final flourishes uh to finish out the album so um yeah you know it's always great to hear george cables because he's such a master uh you know with uh, so much experience. I, I particularly like all the recordings he did accompanying uh, Art Pepper. He's a fine accompanist, and when he has his chance to solo, it's always beautiful. And it was nice for Glover to feature him here. Uh, however, I feel for her, um, you know, her meat is uh, her trio sort of uh, setting. Um, I think that open format uh without a harmonic instrument inspires her and brings out the kind of the fire and youthful energy in her playing. Um, and I, she feels a bit confined to me in a regular kind of full ensemble. Um, Mm. you know, so I feel like there's two, two sort of energies on this album on, uh, here. And so uh, I, I liked her more in that, you know, sort of, uh, uh, on, 
uninhibited kind of a trio format. So I imagine uh, that's what we're going to hear more from her in the future. And uh, I think she'll break some, you know, stereotypes of, you know, uh, sort of a female sax players or, um, you know. And there are quite a few of them out like there that. now. There are quite a few of them. Yeah. Um, I think she's got one of the best kind of edges and uh, aggressive kind of uh, um, concepts that I've heard. Uh, and I, mm-hmm. I like it. And I think she's got th- these guys as a trio seem to really uh, lock in together with that kind of uh, element. So um, I, I liked this, what I heard here a lot more. I wasn't so sold on what she contributed to the Art Hirahara album. Um, huh. um, but I thought, oh, I'll check out, you know, uh, what she does. And uh, yeah, I really like uh, what I heard here. And uh, I was happy to hear George Cable's too, but mm. I would have liked to actually maybe heard it as two separate albums, like with a, yeah. a complete kind of a quartet and then more of her with her trio too. Well, I feel like she's um, best, not only with the trio, but in the more aggressive pieces. She really mm. seems to shine that she has this big muscular tone. She's got a lot of energy. Yeah. But I feel like she she sounds kind of restrained in the slow works. We mentioned Jinji. And I also, um, in A Flower is a Lovesome Thing, it's a really familiar melody. But I didn't get the sense of, um, you, know, you know, that it, it wasn't really like tugging at the heartstrings yeah. the way it, it could. She's kind of yeah, you know, it only, it's it's almost like she wants she wants to be aggressive. She doesn't really like this um the she, you know, the ballads the way the way the she has to kind of like yeah, you know, lay back for the ballad, you know I what I mean? I think it's a personality thing. There's some yeah. players who never play aggressive, but they have mm-hmm. that sort of uh, how can I say? It's 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 sort of uh subsumed or or something. It's it's restrained into right that, you know, sort of uh restrained style yeah and there's something more implied and i don't feel mm. she has that sense because mm. she's much better at when she's playing um you know unrestrained out there yeah so, you can actually hear too that she's really yeah enjoying that's it what she's too. comfortable it's, with yeah. um yeah. so i don't think she's by nature a restrained player although she's <laughs> you know holding back in that sense oh maybe as time goes on and she you know uh matures into that too it's not that she can't play restrained but you feel like she's not giving uh her, yeah, true her heart's nature not in, in it that, really kind of yeah, you know it's yeah that kind I don't of know, thing. So, or something yeah um you know some players play better in you know certain sort of atmospheres uh than others uh, so yeah we'll have to see what she does next but uh definitely she's got the uh the chops and uh oh absolutely she's, yeah. she's got the uh uh, the edge uh, for yeah. that more expressive stuff. So let's see what... Uh, and, she, and she's got a drummer she should stick with because that guy and her seem yeah, to yeah. really have a similar kind of energy and the good energy and approach. too. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Enjoyable. Let's see what she does next. Um, and to round out uh, a name that's uh, well-known in the jazz world that I've known for a while... Um, Normally, I don't always pick up on the the big names. Uh, I like to highlight some new things. But I was interested to see what this one would be. It's been getting a lot of attention. Uh, The alto saxophonist Kenny Garrett uh, with his release uh, Sounds from the Ancestors on Mac Avenue Records. Mm -hmm. And uh, so 
he kind of burst out in the uh, 1970s um, and uh, as a player who played with uh, Art Blakey, Miles Davis. I came to know Kenny Garrett back uh, when I was a youngster in high school uh, wow. with his work uh, in the 80s with uh, Freddie Hubbard and Woody Shaw on the two albums they did together. And I also have uh, the first uh, album he did as a leader, uh, introducing Kenny Garrett. I think this was 1985. And uh, Garrett's always had a distinctive uh, kind of tart alto tone uh, with a fiery concept, you know, borrowing uh, a lot from a jazz tradition, also um, a modern approach, uh, sort of uh, taking uh, John Coltrane's concept and being able to do those ideas on uh, alto sax and a lot of other influences too. Uh, so I've always been a big fan of his playing and he's recorded a, a lot of uh, of his own, I think uh, maybe 20 albums of his own uh, over the years. And so here uh, he gets a new sort of concept album, I guess you could say, uh, Sounds from the Ancestors. Uh, uh, this is described as remembering the spirit of the sounds of African ancestors from church services, recited prayers, songs from the work fields, Yoruban chants and African drums, uh, and uh, lots of other things mixed together. So it's a lot of can, big can ideas. I, can I say, though, my impression of listening to this album that he's also being very inspired by like a lot of the jazz and funk that was around in the 1970s, because a lot of these tracks kind of reminded me of that era. Well, yeah, they, they all have um, kind of uh, different dedications to them. Uh, right. the, the core group is uh, Garrett's... Uh, regular group, I guess, with him on alto sax, uh, Vernell Brown Jr. on piano, Corcoran Holt on bass, uh, Ronald Bruner drums, Rudy Bird on percussion. Uh, there's a host of other people who appear on here. Dwight Tribble, Jean Baylor, Linny Smith, Chris Ashley, Anthony, uh, Shahrazade Holman on vocals, uh, guest appearances from drummer Lenny White, pianist and organist Johnny Mercier, trumpeter Maurice Brown, uh, Conguero, Pedrito Martinez, uh, Bata Percussionist, Dreiser, Duruthi, uh, other singers, Dwight Tribble, Jean Beller, Linny Smith, Chris Ashley Anthony, um, and on a, a couple of the cuts, uh, Garrett plays piano and sings himself. So hmm. <laughs> there's a lot of things going on here. <clears throat> Yeah, and, before uh, you go, before you go to the music too, I want to talk about the album cover, which I really like oh, a lot. I think yeah. it's a really attractive cover. It's in Africa, bright African colors, and it's got it's sort of like a drawing of him playing the saxophone. And there's sort of like a water behind him, which is the below the waist of this kind of boy African ancestral type figure, who's blowing inspiration into his ear, and he's playing, and out of the saxophone are coming all these sort of colors and fish and things like that. It, yeah, it's, it's a, cool a really, album cover. It's a really intriguing piece of art. Yeah. Um, I have to say, well, maybe I'll say when I get to the end, uh, I liked it better as as it went along, um, but I wasn't sold uh, from the beginning. Um, Although I did like the opening track with the Latin groove. Yeah, yeah. That was really cool. Um, well, let's go through it. The, the first one mm. is called It's Time to Come Home. 
And this is an Afro-Cuban style, uh, probably inspired from uh, the playing that Garrett did with uh, Chucho Valdez. Right. Uh, so you've got that Cuban groove, uh, bass and piano keep the groove, uh, with some tight Latin percussion. Uh, Garrett plays the melody and he solos, uh, gets outside of the chords for a bit of tension, uh, but he mostly stays subtle. Uh, and this one has some added uh, female vocals peppered in. Uh, but then it sort of gets into this section where uh, Garrett sort of turns rhythmic and he kind of goes through this section of repeated uh, kind of breathy honks and subtones on a percussive thing. Well, that went on a bit long for my taste. Uh, and then... Uh, Towards the end, we get some uh, recitation and vocalization that's performed by uh, Dwight Tribble in the Yoruba language over the percussion. Um, I, w I'm, I was waiting for more saxophone because it's uh, Kenny you, Garrett. You know, you know, but, you know what's weird um, about this track? Is, I hate to jump to the end, but they repeat this track at the end. This is another version of it. And I liked that... I like that version a lot better, actually. Well, actually, it's yeah. the same exact version without the yeah. vocals. Um, oh, really? It's the same track, yeah. Maybe yeah, it was this... because the the maybe the saxophone was just easier to hear or something, because I felt like, yeah. I don't know, maybe, although at, maybe after it, the music come, I kind of um, changed. But it's okay. basically without the vocals, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, okay. Track two is Hargrove, and this is a, uh, a tribute to the late uh, Roy Hargrove, who passed away uh, a year or so ago. Uh, this is an R&B groove, and this is uh, very reminiscent of the groove that uh, uh, Hargrove uh, used for some of his tunes on the uh, Ear Food recording, if you've heard that <laughs> it's one. great title. <laughs> yeah, it's, an, it's a really nice album. Uh, the sax and the trumpet share the melody. Uh, there's some kind of uh, female backing vocals ooing added in here. And then uh, the the Saxon trumpet trade of some phrases uh, over the backing vocals, which are repeating a love supreme, because an ode mm. to John Coltrane. Uh, you can get a taste of Garrett's trademark tart tone, but still there weren't any solos here. So by this point, I was getting a little bit disappointed that, uh, you know, this is too much sizzle and no steak <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of sizzle. There's a lot, yeah. lot of grooving, and there's a lot of yeah. yeah he's kind of doing this, a yeah. lot of honking as well, which I kind of think is kind of cool. I really it like cool, it. But, but yeah, I know you're waiting for that solo. I'm waiting for that, and I didn't get it in yeah. the next track either. Uh, number three, <laughs> when the it kind of moves were, like a fusion record a little bit. Yeah, you know? when the days were yeah. different. This is like a, a modern gospel progression. It's an uplifting piano part. Uh, uh, this is a different piano pianist on this. This is uh, yeah, Johnny Mercier. He's got that kind of touch that reminds me of uh, Chuck Lavelle, even on uh, mm. those uh, Southern rock kind of recordings. But then behind that, there's a nice organ wash, like, uh, you know, church organ. Uh, I get some background ooze that come in and some more vocalization. Uh, at around three minutes, there's some more vocals, and Garrett finally picks up his sax and plays. <laughs> uh, um, he weaves some gos bluesy, gospel-y phrases around the repeating gospel patterns. It's all cool. Uh, and the ending distills down to just voice and sax. You get some that organ, bass, pedals, and chords. Um, uh, kind of repetitive, gospel-y thing. Mm. Uh, now, the album starts to uh, give me the 
steak that I was waiting for. All right. Uh, see yes. They're uh, just serving an appetizer to begin. It's <laughs> called uh, For Art's Sake. Uh, it's a busy drum beat intro, kind of, and its tune is a tribute to uh, Art Blakey and Tony Allen, uh, jazz drummers. This one's got some electric piano backing in it that adds a kind of thick wash, but there's also acoustic piano in here, so you get these layers of keyboards. There's a lot of things going on uh, rhythmically with the keyboard there. Uh, Garrett takes a solo, uh, picking up on the fast figure from the melody, includes a lot of other uh, fast figures and interesting harmonics, uh, and there's an electric piano solo, while Garrett adds some backing lines and uh, get to shift to some drumming features while the keyboards keep the chords going. Uh, I'm starting to get more drawn in at this point. Uh, five, what was that? Now this one is a cool kind of a polyrhythm and a moving harmonic vehicle. Uh, the bass keeps things anchored throughout the tune uh, while Garrett gets some real space to finally open up uh, with his solo. He's got a few kind of uh, uh, Love Supreme type uh, interval uh, melodic things, nods in a phrase in here. Uh, very cool rhythmic piano solo uh, and the percussion takes us out over some uh, riffing uh, in the rhythm section and sax. Uh, track six, Soldiers of the Fields or Soldats de Shrams. Uh, this is a dual tribute to jazz musicians who kept the music alive and also Haitian soldiers who fought against the French during the Haitian Revolution. Uh, this one is made up from a cool modulating motif-based uh, tune that has kind of a marching military beat to it. So the rhythm is really unique. Uh, and it actually um, kind of switches uh, into uh, two different sections. Uh, so uh, Garrett's really inspired in his solo over this kind of har moving harmonic cycle here. Uh, and the piano solo is quite energetic too. Uh, which navigates these harmonies, but also gets some cool new rhythmic ideas in the piano solo. About halfway through the song, a new melodic theme emerges, uh, and it's outlined by Garrett. And there's a kind of a new beat uh, that has these pressing accents. Uh, some notes I saw, I said it's a Guadalupian beat, uh, although mm -hmm. I'm not you know, familiar how that's distinctive, but it's a different kind of... Uh, feel from the kind of martial military beginning of the tune. Uh, some more extended kind of keyboard chords uh, in the second half, and this really push um, uh, Garrett into sort of Coltrane-like uh, harmonic explorations in this one. This is a really expansive kind of uh, things. And then after he's like played all the notes you can imagine from this sort of mode in there, he gets in some cool squawks and shrieks on the saxophone mm. uh, for, you know, just some more emotional expression. Uh, and uh, when he's got all that, he dials it down a bit and then it's over to the piano uh, for another solo and ending on the second kind of theme. And it ends with uh, kind of punctuated uh, phrases together. So, yeah, this one was sort of what I've been waiting for uh, in terms yeah. of uh, soloing and expression. Uh, finally, seven... Uh, Sounds from the Ancestors, title track. Uh, this one uh, starts with Garrett on piano, uh, playing yeah. a somber theme. 
Uh, and this is fine. We finally get a chance to rest a little bit here <laughs> yeah. because it's been full on, right? It's full know, on. R- rhythmically right up to this point. Uh, and so you get this somber theme on the piano that suddenly uh, hits this phrase that turns rhythmic. Uh, these vocal uh, cries from uh, Tribble come in and they've got these uh, Yoruban lyrics uh, from Pedrito. And this is supposedly paying respect to Oren Mila, the deity of wisdom. Uh, mm. Garrett joins in on sax, and now he's newly inspired to blow over the rhythmic and vocal soundscape that's going on yeah. there. This, I should mention the piece picks up after oh, yeah. the opening yeah. piano. Oh, this, yeah, it doesn't stay quiet. This, this rhythm, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah. it goes on and on, but then the celebration kind of ends suddenly, and it, Garrett tags on a kind of short reprise of the opening theme. Uh, so it's kind of sandwiched in the melancholy kind of uh, piano piece. Uh, and then the final track uh, is... I mentioned the, this already. Same as the original yeah. track. Yeah, it's time to come home again. And I, I believe this is just the same track without the uh, added vocals. Uh, I did like this one, better, so. though. I stand by that. Yeah, well, I could hear the sax uh, more. So... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, I guess it's an interesting concept album. I mean, it's it's a lot of uh, it's an exploration of African derived influences, you know, that uh, came directly from Africa through the Caribbean, uh, through the church and other things. Um, I just thought that in some of the earlier tracks, there's kind of more, uh, you know, ambiance sizzle than stake if you're looking for uh, Garrett's signature sex soloing. But maybe at this point in his career, you know, he didn't need to do a straight ahead blowing uh, album and he wanted to sort of uh, create a musical soundscape uh, in order to set his playing into. And I thought that the second half of it uh, made up for that and uh, satisfied me with more (laughs) of uh, his... uh, trademark uh, virtuosity and intensity of sax playing so uh, yeah worth a listen i'm sure this one's going to get a lot of attention and probably going to win some awards uh yeah i liked it overall but you know. I, I did too i like the uh, high energy of it. it it really just pulled me in and i was really kind of enthralled by it really right to the end it's it's very repetitive a lot of the uh, the patterns yeah, repeat yeah. very often um, but that's that's not a problem, I and mean, we hear that a lot in popular music. But and but here it's kind of yeah, it'll have a lot of it, pop appeal. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I liked it. I liked it. It it, it was in, enthralling rhythmically. Yeah. So I think that's why I liked the energy of it all. It was really great. Yeah. And of course, Garrett's soloing as well, and his honks and squawks, which I really enjoy hearing. Yeah, a cry for freedom. Yep. One day we'll all be free. Boy, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, I think <laughs> I think I think it's after we die that it happens, though. So. Could be. Well, you we'll know, have to see if we could do that halfway there beforehand. at least, anyway. So. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, me and you are some some other people have a lot a lot longer ways to go. They do, and some have gone yeah. on before us. So. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Well, a very windy episode. Yeah. Episode 33 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. And autumn is here, and that's going to bring in a lot of uh, good new music. There's already a lot uh, on the uh, 
back burner that's going to come up pretty yeah, soon. We're heating up some things for next week's right. episode. And right. so uh, if you're still with us at this point, uh, thanks for listening. And uh, please do take a moment to comment or uh, subscribe on whatever service you're on. Remember, if you'd like to contact us directly, uh, please don't hesitate. Our email address, adultmusicpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And we're going to see you again next week. I think we might have some bigger sounds brewing on the back burner. Yeah, I think we're. Pl- I think I'm planning for some uh, big. Uh, what, how would you say frequency encompassing sort of um, full spectrum? Yeah, full spectrum. There you go. That's what I was looking for. All right, full spectrum sounds. I've got something to match mm-hmm. that as the jazz list grows with lots of. Uh, summer and early autumn releases it'll be a good time again next week yeah all right so this has been episode 33 of adult music and it's been a pleasure yes it certainly has so keep uh, blowing in the wind and we'll see you again next time Mm -hmm.